leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. is a drug discovery company focused on using model organisms to find treatments for diseases previously believed too rare to cure. Recently, Perlara entered into a drug discovery and development collaboration with Novartis, a deal that included an equity investment and is seen as validating Perlara's platform. We spoke to Ethan Perlstein, CEO of Perlara, about the company's unique approach to drug discovery, why it focuses on the diseases it does, the significance of its agreement with Novartis. Ethan, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Daniel. We're going to talk about your company, Perlara, its approach to drug discovery for rare diseases, and a recent agreement you entered into with Novartis. First, I thought we could begin with Perlara's approach to drug discovery. You use uh, model organisms that have been engineered to serve as models for rare diseases and screen potential drugs. Can can you walk me through that process? Sure. So we can imagine uh, a drug discovery process where uh, everything that happens in in patients has a a parallel in in the model organisms. And we can start to think about it from the point of view of the the registries. So the first step in, in, in our process is to model a particular uh, rare disease in, 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 in different species, in different animal models, uh, yeast, worm, fly, and fish. And the starting point is to understand what are the mutations that actually exist out there in patients and try to model them specifically. And that's where gene editing technology comes into play and allows us to create essentially personalized disease avatars, you know, a fruit fly or a worm that would have a particular patient-specific mutation. Uh, we could also obviously make more representative mutations, but we can get this kind of precision uh, thanks to thanks to CRISPR. Um, and so the second step would be to understand what are the biomarkers that uh, are displayed in these uh, disease models. And so essentially, we carry out natural history studies in these simple animals, uh, and then that way we can verify that these models are are, are therapeutically relevant, and then able to uh, be screened at high throughput, where we use the whole animal. Um, as as our as our screening substrate instead of using cells or, or individual proteins, and then the process for us culminates in, in identifying new compounds uh, that are uh, active in, in a mouse model, and we we know that that's the point at which uh, you could achieve a partnership uh, with a with a biopharma company uh, if you were to advance an asset uh, still early stage, but but to that point of, of preclinical efficacy. So that that basically sums up the Perlara approach. What makes this a good approach, particularly for the discovery of drugs to treat rare diseases? 
So we think that uh, rare genetic diseases, uh, and especially the, the rare genetic diseases that are caused by single genes, in other words, mutations in, in a single gene, um, it turns out that when you do the analysis across any thousands of, of, of these single gene diseases, you're not finding a random uh, set of, of the human genome. You're finding uh, more disproportionately ancient genes uh, popping up uh, among rare disease genes. And so we think, therefore, that studying these um, studying these uh, diseases of, of ancient biology um, is, 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 is appropriate in these simple animal models where we believe that the underlying biology is, is safely conserved. You're focusing specifically on lysosomal storage disorders. Can you explain what this group of diseases is and why you've chosen to focus on them? Yes. So lysosomal storage diseases are, are a group of about 50 um, related diseases that all involve some kind of defect in, in a part of, the, of, of animal cells called the lysosome. And, and every animal cell, whether it's a single-celled yeast or, or us, uh, has, uh, you know, has lysosomes within their cells. People liken it sometimes to the recycling depot of the cell. Um, but I think it, it, it plays a much more fundamental role in, in cellular uh, physiology. Uh, and, and so for that reason, the, the, this, this area of biology is, is, as I said in my previous uh, response, you know, quite conserved evolutionarily. Uh, and it also turns out that from the patient advocacy point of view, because these diseases have, have been known to medicine, um, either, you know, just as a, as a, as a disease, uh, sometimes for decades and then with a genetic diagnosis, you know, in the last 20 years, there was a lot of well-developed patient advocacy in, in the lysosomal storage disease space. So for a combination of reasons, both scientific and, and um, from the point of view of advocacy, lysosomal storage diseases, LSDs, are particularly well de-risked, uh, we thought, for our process um, and, and for any kind of rare disease effort um, in, in, in general, because there are a lot of rare diseases for us to, to choose from as a platform to, to sort of go to market. And lysosomal storage diseases, um, for a lot of reasons, um, fulfilled, fulfilled those de-risking criteria. You mentioned that once you had a mouse model, you could then partner with a, a, a pharma. What's the business model? How far would Prolara expect to take an experimental drug? Yeah, so right now, the way we see the, the process is, is sort of like the Silicon Valley uh, minimum viable product or MVP approach. So what we found is that it's possible to start from zero to create these models um, and then get to a point of preclinical efficacy. Um, or at least to have a set of compounds that are uh, suited, uh, chemically speaking, for, for mouse validation in less than a year. And so that's what we've already demonstrated, that that, that, that is something that um, you know, not only can work scientifically, but from a business development point of view, in the sense that you can create a, a minimally viable, partnerable asset, if you will. Uh, but the idea for us is that over time, we want to hold on to the assets longer uh, and part with them um, you know, closer to IND where they can get um, a much higher price um, relative to the additional cost you have to put in to advance from preclinical efficacy to, to IND. So that, that ultimately is the goal, is to, is to want to become a, an IND marketplace uh, where we advance assets uh, to that point, um, you know, partnering with patient groups um, and then having you know, many avenues of, of clinical development. And the LSDs represent one particular avenue, which is working with uh, you know, one of the best uh, pharma companies in the world. Well, let's talk about that. You recently entered into your first significant collaboration. Last month, you announced the drug discovery and development collaboration with Novartis. This is what I think you'd call a validating deal. What can you say about the terms of the agreement, which did include an equity investment? Yeah, so I, I'm not at liberty to disclose all the, all the, the, the specific terms, but essentially it's, it's a deal that uh, uh, comprises an investment um, in Prolara. 
um, and also a, a collaboration agreement where we're going to be working on um, uh, three lysosomal storage disease together, starting with Neiman Pick Type C, which is Prolara's uh, lead program. Uh, and again, the, the way the collaboration is envisioned is that we would, would be able to boot up a, a disease program in the model organism, uh, sort of from scratch, um, as we did with Neiman Pick C or MPC, and then it's an advance um, in a sort of two-year time frame or less to a point of, of preclinical efficacy, at which point the, the asset or the chemical series, uh, in this case, would then be handed off to, to Novartis for, for further uh, optimization uh, and, and preclinical development. So that's how the, the, the partnership is uh, and the collaboration is, is structured. Novartis is not a company that comes top of mind when thinking about rare diseases. What's their footprint in rare diseases and, and what do you think is driving their interest here? Well, they definitely have a, 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 a program in, in SMA uh, that I think is um, um, is, is nearing a, a, a some kind of fruition. So I think that there there is an experience on their side in in rare diseases. I think this represents a, I think a, a a larger opportunity to think about the connections between rare and common diseases. Uh, I think we're not the first to, to see these connections, especially lysosomal storage diseases. Uh, but I think that definitely is a is a, is an animating spirit to the collaboration is to uh, is to see lysosomal storage diseases in this case uh, as a way not only to to, to arrive at, uh, you know, what Jay Bradner calls definitive medicine, where you would have a real non-incremental, non-sort of simply palliative effect. Um, and, and that's what we'd be striving for. And if at the same time, you can also, uh, you know, target you know, ancient biology in a way that um, is, is uh, you know, disease-modifying in more common indications that, that you know, may involve the same underlying biology, then, then I think that that's an opportunity that, that obviously excites a lot of people um, not only in rare diseases, but people looking into the rare disease space and wondering what what could be their strategy. The lead program you you mentioned is on Neiman Pick Type C disease. What is Neiman Pick Type C? How common is it? How how does it manifest itself? And, and what's the progression of the disease? And Neiman Pick C is is quite devastating uh, among lysosomal storage uh, disorders. Um, usually, there's an infantile form, but usually it's diagnosed as a juvenile form. Uh, and the kids usually don't survive uh, into adulthood. Uh, the, 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 we're talking in America, or the United States at least, um, uh, you know, several hundred patients um, and, uh, you know, maybe one in, in 120,000 births um, uh, is, is sort of the frequency you, you see this. And again, these are, these are rough estimates. So it's, it's definitely on the rarer side of rare compared to, say, fibrosis, um, but not necessarily... Uh, what would be considered maybe ultra rare, where there may be only fewer than a hundred uh, patients uh, diagnosed. Um, and as a lysosomal storage disease, MPC um, has, has has sort of features of, of lipid accumulation, uh, in that in that case, among others, with cholesterol. But it may not be as simple as some of the other LSDs in terms of well, you just have too much of something that normally doesn't accumulate, and and the whole disease flows from there. Appears to be uh, more complicated than that, given that the MPC one protein. Uh, is, is not only an evolutionarily conserved protein, but one that plays a really interesting uh, function in the cell. Uh, in fact, it's, it comes sort of almost completely serendipitously, it turns out that Ebola virus and that class of virus use the MPC1 protein as the entry point into cells. Um, so it, that all, all these sort of um, you know quirks of biology get illuminated when you start probing any one given rare disease, and MPC is no exception. And finding a treatment for a Neiman pick does that possibly have ramifications for more common cholesterol and cardiovascular diseases? 
Potentially. I mean, people have done GWAS or genome-wide association studies where they've implicated variation in the NPC1 gene with, for example, obesity and, and potentially other sort of metabolic-related uh, and potentially cholesterol-related you know, diseases. Um, but again, that, that, is, that, that I think those are sort of suggested at this point, um, but, but they are strongly suggested. And you can look to other examples of an LSTs where there are very clear connections between uh, you know, what amount to a rare form of neurogeneration and a, and a more common form um, where this, it's essentially the same underlying biology affected. And, and does doing the deal with Novartis give you an opportunity to use larger libraries of potential drugs to throw against these screens? Absolutely. Uh, that, that's definitely the idea here. So, so what, the, the, the kind of, again, one of the animating spirits of the collaboration is that we want to put in vivo models at the top of the screening flowchart. Um, you know, folks like Novartis have done an amazing job of building capacity to do cell-based screens and target-based screens, but, but doing whole animal screens, that's, that's sort of, that's our special sauce. So there's definitely emphasis on building those models and then exposing them to, um, you know, different kinds of libraries. We have our own, you know, set of commercially available compound libraries, but we can certainly be screening um, these with, with their collections too. And you have, um, as a preclinical candidate, you have identified a, a, a lead. How close are you to entering the clinic with uh, with a Neiman-Pick type C disease? Yeah, so for Neiman-Pick C, for NPC, we we have a lead molecule that we that we refer to as Pearl 101, and we've actually been blogging about it uh, on our blog, and uh, we're actually doing an update uh, pretty soon. We started the series of, of posts of that almost exactly a year ago. Uh, and, and I, you know, we're still, we're still a bit of a ways away, uh, still have a lot of uh, work to do. So there's still, um, some definitive mouse efficacy studies that need to be performed. There's still some lead optimization that has to happen to improve the compound. The compound was sort of born ready in a lot of ways in, in terms of having oral bioavailability and, and blood brain barrier penetrability and other great properties already baked into this to the starting structure. But, um, you know, it, it can be improved in terms of potency. So, uh, we definitely need to do some more work on the preclinical side, but, but the goal is to uh, is eventually to obviously re- reach the clinic as quickly as we can. But um, we're, we, as I say, we, there, there's still more development work ahead, and we know that there are obviously always pitfalls associated with with drug discovery, no matter what step of the process you're at. Um, but you know, we're we are we're moving forward, and we're also characterizing um, Pro 101's mechanism of action, and and hopefully also its target uh, ultimately, um, which I, which will also help us understand better. Um, you know how how it could be useful more broadly beyond NPC. Um, once we've ascertained that it really is, um, um, the, the, its primary indication is is for NPC. You're also working on uh, Engliwana, an ultra rare disease. Does the Novartis agreement cover that as well? No, so that that's separate. And so actually, that that's part of what, um, it, 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 so so that we we sort of saw the pharma partnership. If I step back a minute from the, the business perspective. Uh, we saw a pharma partnership as a way to get that that validation, as you said, the validating deal. And and what was that really validating? Well, it's validating the kind of bottom up joint joint partnerships that we're calling ProQuest um, that we want to be doing um, with 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 individual families, foundations, um, whatever sort of the the patient advocacy group, however it comes composed. We want to be partnering with them and do essentially the same kind of process we did with the NPC program, um, but do it in the context of, of, a, of a bottom-up patient partnership. Uh, again, it's something that we're calling the ProQuest. So we'd say Engli-1 represents uh, an example where we'll be doing a, a ProQuest, and, and hopefully that will be the first of, of, of our first batch uh, to come uh, in 2017. Engli-1 is interesting in that it's had some implications in bone growth and, and cancer and Parkinson's mm-hmm. disease. Do you, do you see... 
potential for attracting pharmaceutical in interest in that by its other applications? Absolutely. I, and I think this is just the trend that you keep, that we'll probably keep seeing, which is that if you look at these um, ancient genes that are causing, um, you know, single gene diseases, it's going to turn out that once you fully elucidate the surrounding basic biology, uh, the connections to disease states are going to start to become you know, very apparent. And it won't be uh, sort of an exception that this is going to be a case where you find uh, a definitive therapy for a very rare disease that also ends up being demodifying in, in, in more common uh, indications. Uh, I think the exact path for NY1 has not been elucidated, but that's part of the, you know, the thrill of this discovery process is trying to uncover not only a therapeutic for this disease, but understanding how more broadly useful could that therapeutic be. You know, we can discuss the why traditional farmers find rare diseases attractive, uh, but they still have to get economics to work for them. Are you concerned that some of these diseases you're pursuing would be too small a market for a, a big pharma? Is, is that an issue? Uh, it, it potentially could be. And I think part of, you know, one way, to, I think there are two ways to approach that. One is, is I think we get our unit economic uh, costs really, really low. If our unit economics are really good and our costs are low, then I think we, we can sort of say, look, these programs um, are not going to be hindered by, by leg failure legacy costs. Uh, and so we can really, I think, potentially be much more transparent about the costs going into developing therapies. And we do aim to make those costs go down. So I think that, that could be one, you know, one strategy, uh, to, to sell this idea of investing in rare diseases. And then the kind of follow up is once you've initiated that investment, you know, as you start to understand more about the biology of the disease, you're inevitably going to find connections to something more common. You know, I think it's going to be the exception to find a rare disease that if you do something, it has zero impact on any other surrounding, either related rare diseases or any other disease. So I think it's only a matter of time, especially as we develop, you know, a bit deeper insights into human genomes and simply have more human genome sequences around. I think we'll, you know, we'll, we'll start to see that the connections that start popping up between any given rare disease and, and, and more common, you know, essentially more, more common manifestations of that same broken biology. Ethan Perlstein, founder and CEO of Perlara. Ethan, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.